I'd like to talk to you about Orlando. We aren't sure how it got its name. The origins of Tampa's name come from the Creek tribe, meaning nearby, referring to its location by the bay. There are other possible words that Tampa could be referring to, but we generally accept that Creek definition. Then there's the Panhandle. It used to be a thriving home to the Appalachian tribe. However, when the Spaniards arrived in the 16th century, they brought war and sickness, and the Appalachian tribe reduced in numbers significantly. They abandoned the area that they were living in and referred to it as Old Town or Abandoned Fields. In their language, the word for that is Tallahassee. The name stuck. Jacksonville was named for our first colonial governor, Andrew Jackson, who went on to be the President of the United States. Gainesville was named for General Edmund P. Gaines, who fought in the Seminole Wars in Florida. Miami is an adaptation of the Calusa word for big water, originally Miami. Naples was named for Naples, Italy, after tourism ads started comparing the climate in Florida to that of the Italian coast. And then there's Orlando. We have had many names over the past few centuries. In 1835, a group of U.S. soldiers led by Major Francis Dade were heading northeast from Tampa toward present-day Ocala. The 111 soldiers were massacred by an ambushing group of 180 Seminole warriors. This battle was on December 28, 1835, and sparked the second conflict between the U.S. military and the Seminole tribe. One victim of this massacre was named Dr. John S. Gatlin. So when a strategic fort was to be built in the middle of Florida, it was named after him, Fort Gatlin. That was our very first name, and it lasted during the Second Seminole War. Through the Armed Occupation Act of 1842, land would be taken from the natives living in the area, then given to settlers near the forts and allowed them to establish a home. From there came Aaron and Mary Jernigan, who founded a little hamlet called, what else, Jernigan. Aaron settled what would soon become Orlando and served as our first state representative. By 1856, we were a full city, growing and expanding. This came with a name change. And here is where the complications arise. We have several versions of the story. One says that a critical judge, one James Spear, named Orlando after a friend of his. Another says that he named it after a character in As You Like It by William Shakespeare. One says that a traveler with the surname Orlando died from a sudden illness and was buried nearby and we took his name. But the most unusual story is that of Orlando Reeves. A plaque near our central lake, Lake Yola, reads, quote, Orlando Reeves, in whose honor our city Orlando was named, killed in this vicinity by Indians September 1835, end quote. But here's the thing. Orlando Reeves doesn't exist. There's no trace of him in federal military records, nothing. There was a man, however, with the most spectacular middle name of all time, Orlando Savage Rees, R-E-E-S. This man was a farmer who was greatly affected by the Seminole Wars. He had lost slaves and cattle to the war, and he wanted them back. So he sought out to find the Seminoles that stole from him, leaving markers across the state as he went. One theory is that a sign had been left here, in Orlando and the name was adopted. With all this in mind, historians still believe the Shakespeare connection is the most likely origin of our name. And names are important, Shakespeare himself said so. What's in a name? 
For the people of Tampa, Tallahassee, and Miami, it's a connection to the first Floridians, the ones who were here before the Europeans. For the people of Gainesville and Jacksonville, it is a reminder of our bloody past. For the people of Orlando, it's a complicated mess of war and change and even art. But for the people inside of Orlando, notably the ones living on Division Avenue, which was a historical split between the white communities and the black communities of our town, Division Avenue's name is everything. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, Griffin Park, Division Avenue, and the historic black communities of downtown Orlando. Last June, the Orlando Housing Authority said they would be demolishing the historic neighborhood of Griffin Park. It was the very first federal housing project in our city. It sits on the eastern edge of Paramore, an incredibly densely populated, predominantly black neighborhood on the west side of Orlando. It's separated from downtown by the interstate. What was once a thriving community has been reduced to one of the poorest places in Orlando. Whole areas of the original neighborhood were cleared out for urban and suburban growth, two separate highways carved through their homes, and younger generations just moved away, leaving no opportunity for economic growth. The system came down hard upon Paramore, giving the people there no opportunity. And Griffin Park, the neighborhood within the neighborhood, has it even worse. They are literally surrounded on all sides by I-4 and the 408. They have been there for decades. With construction increasing and the pollution in the area growing, the 300 or so people in Griffin Park are trapped. History is an interesting thing, wherein pieces of it can just go missing, and that story or name or fact can just be lost forever. You can spend days scrolling through the books, articles, and websites and find a name you've never seen before and you may never see again in your research. Trust me, I have experienced this firsthand. A.W. Dimmick, who I talked about a few weeks ago, if you Google him, you find almost nothing about him, but he's in so many books as this notable figure, but poof, gone. It's like a river, and getting a foothold starts to feel impossible, especially when you start digging deeper. This is true even more so when we are talking about black history, especially when we are talking about instances where white communities have showed unfathomable cruelty to black communities. These stories just disappear. I don't need to tell you that that is no accident. Bob Beatty, the former curator of education at the Orange County Regional History Center, puts it like this, quote, The biggest difficulty with documenting African-American history is the fact that no institution such as mine preserved it, end quote. There is a culpability in that statement that I admire. Historians of the past just didn't keep the history safe, so our usual sources such as libraries or archives just don't have the information. It dissolves. So throughout this story as I tell it to you, there will be roadblocks where questions outweigh the answers. But all this doesn't stop modern historians from trying their best. The Orange County Public Library, for example, has an entire section dedicated to Florida reference books, including rare histories and archival documents that can't even be checked out from the library. It was there, on the fourth floor, surrounded by my fellow citizens of Orlando, that history unfolded out in front of me. I found several books among these shelves, but the most prominent was Crossing Division Street, an oral history of the African-American community in Orlando by Benjamin D. 
broke Markle. Right before the turn of the century, the population of white and black citizens were almost identical. White citizens were at 143,000 and black citizens were at 127,000. In 1880, a man named Sam Jones found himself a home near a sinkhole south of Orlando. This spot became a haven for Orlando's black community, including individuals who had just been freed from slavery a decade and a half before. It was right within the borders of Orlando, its own community within the city. It was named Jonestown after that first pioneer Jones, just like Jernigan had so many years before. At the same time, a man named James B. Paramore, who would soon become Orlando's mayor, was establishing a neighborhood named after himself to the west of Orlando. It was to be a home for, quote, the blacks employed in the households of white Orlandoans, end quote. In 1939, 60 years later, a home inside of Jonestown burned down, and when the city was helping Jonestown repair, the white residents of Orlando demanded, quote unquote, white occupancy in this part of the city. Within two years, all of the residents that had made Jonestown home between Central and South Street were moved. Their 40 or so homes were emptied out, reclaimed, and the white population of Orlando flooded in. Griffin Park was built in 1940 at the edge of Paramore and became the next home for the citizens of Jonestown. The plan to move everyone out of Jonestown was actually created by then-director of Orlando's housing authority, Colin Murchison. He used the empty space of Jonestown and turned it into Reeves Terrace, possibly named after that fictional Orlando Reeves. It was now a federal housing project for white citizens only. In the following decades, segregation hit Orlando with precision. Not just because the city government was working fully to have the black citizens removed and put in communities that were built for them, not by them, but also because the city literally drew a line in the sand. That's Division Avenue. Colloquially, it is called Division Street. It may have originally been called Division Street and had the name changed, but like I said, history has roadblocks. Whether or not it is a street or an avenue is secondary to the fact that it is called Division. Division Avenue starts in the north at Washington Street. Washington Street itself dead ends at Lake Yola, the core of Orlando just a few blocks from the original Jonestown. Division Avenue ends at Michigan Street, just north of Lake Holden. Its entire length is just about two miles, and it runs parallel to Interstate 4 and borders three predominantly black communities, Callahan, Paramore, and Griffin Park. You may not even notice Griffin Park if you weren't sure what you were looking for. The best view of it is when you are driving the most dangerous part of our highway system, so it's easy for you to miss it. It is literally nested inside of, not next to, not under, but inside of a highway interchange. If you search Griffin Park Orlando on Google Maps, it becomes clear. It is encased by a triangle, with 408 on the north, I-4 cutting southeast, and the ramps connecting the two on the west. You have to drive under either the ramps or the interstate to even enter Griffin Park. You might miss several entrances because whole portions of the spots near the neighborhood are covered in dirt, stamped on by huge construction machines, and home to cranes suspending massive amounts of heavy equipment right next to the homes. Griffin Park is what is called Section 8 Housing, which runs on the Section 8 Housing Voucher Program. It's federally funded and assists in providing affordable housing for lower income, disabled, and elderly residents. 
Similar to other voucher programs, it also allows a person to choose a place that they would like to live in that is considered affordable housing, then apply through the system and receive a voucher that provides money for rent and utilities. Nationally, in 2017, over 2.2 million families were using vouchers. Florida has 101,000 of those vouchers, and the Orlando Housing Authority alone manages 3,364 families. But right now, we are in a crisis. The National Low Income Housing Coalition released a report earlier this year that named the Orlando metro area, quote, as the worst place in the country for affordable housing, with only 13 affordable and available rental homes per low-income renter household, end quote. We have so many people who need help and nowhere to help them. Experts say that this is a ripple effect, where affordable housing falls to the wayside, then healthcare, then quality food, and then other amenities just start to fall right behind. That's just the cycle of poverty. But Griffin Park has a whole other set of problems in the form of the highways. The air conditioning units in the apartment buildings take in highly polluted air and pumps out oxygen that has soot and other toxic elements in it. According to the residents of Griffin Park and Paramore, people in the area often are diagnosed with cancer, respiratory illnesses, asthma, and more. Sometimes people can be seen walking the streets with filtration masks to assist in breathing. One national study shows that, quote, people of color were exposed to more transportation-related pollution than white people, end quote. Griffin Park is just Orlando's bastion of a hidden national dilemma. Trucks rumble by and shake the apartment units. Passersby shout insults at the residents from the highway. Sound walls were supposed to be built four years ago and never came in. There are rats being unearthed by the construction. There are even concerns of children losing their hearing due to the exposure from the cars passing by. When I visited this week, it felt like a fishbowl. Kids played on a nearby playground with the highway overhead. One resident and I exchanged a wave as I drove by. The apartments have the standard yellow-orange color of a Florida strip mall and have sidewalks that connect the street parking to the front porches of the homes. There is nowhere that you can look where you aren't seeing the interstate. Nationally, many interstates were built for this exact purpose. In the 1950s, when highways were starting to sprout up all over the country, most city officials nationwide were straightforward about the fact that interstates could carve through black neighborhoods, take up their land, and push them out of their urban communities. The path for interstates and where the exits were constructed were specifically for middle-class white neighborhoods, connecting them like a river. Intentionally, they avoided the minority neighborhoods. For Eatonville, north of Orlando, they failed, and Eatonville still thrives, though it sandwiches the interstate. But for Griffin Park and Paramore, and for the cities on Division Street, I-4 just drives the line in the sand of Division Avenue even deeper. There is no doubt about the presence of systemic racism, and history is entrenched in these stories. Denying that is denying reality. It isn't just a governmental problem, it is a problem of humanity. As someone who researches history on a weekly basis, I find that human beings of years gone past never cease to stun me with the lengths they will go in order to oppress, harm, and wipe out people of color. If you've never considered that an interstate could be part of that system, don't blame yourself. I certainly didn't. It's privileged, certainly. But it's insane, regardless of the fact that we've never considered it before. It's insane. I mean, 
It's crazy that an entire community is enclosed on all sides by a highway. You have to see it to believe it, and I highly recommend that you see it. But Griffin Park in its current form doesn't have much of a future. The last few years have been even worse as the I-4 Ultimate project has taken up space on the property, closed off roads to the community, and used up office space. The residents have been speaking to their city officials for years up to this point and have received mild response, including promises of quote-unquote beautification projects for their neighborhoods. Those can be good, but I'll save my rant on gentrification for another episode. There are 40,000 people on a waiting list for affordable housing in Orlando. There are 345 people who would face displacement if Griffin Park was torn down. There were concerns that a brand new property would just be built on the exact same spot. However, Paramore Oaks could be hope. It is built right next door to where Griffin Park currently is, but it's on the other side of the ramps. It still borders I-4, but it has open space all its own, and it also wasn't built before America joined the Second World War. It is six acres, over 200 units, and could protect a community in need of help. And I like the name of it too. I like that it's called Paramore Oaks, after Paramore. Paramore is a city that has taken the name as their own. Though it was named for a white mayor, just as Eatonville was named for a white investor, those communities have claimed those names for themselves. At the beginning of this year, part of the beautification began on MLK Day of Service. A mural of Dr. King was painted on a wall next to a painting of a Paramore street sign. A new food pantry was set up inside of a church in town. A health coalition was founded by UCF and has set up shop in town to promote healthy eating, provide health counseling, and assist with nursing programs in the neighborhood. Griffin Park was originally named for an old slave who had died in Orlando in the late 30s named Charles Griffin. It sickens my stomach thinking about a black community built by white city officials who are making space for more white citizens and then naming it after a former slave. The twisted irony in it strikes deep. So when Griffin Park finally comes down and Paramore Oaks springs into place, it won't be named for a former slave or a former governor or a former investor. It will be named for the city of Paramore, the city that persists. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider sharing the link to it on your Facebook or on your Twitter or on your Instagram. I know that you know people who would love this show. And also, while you're here, why not scroll down and leave a little review or a comment and tell me how much you're enjoying the show? It would seriously mean the world to me. And it helps a little show like this one grow. All of the links for the research can be found in the description below, along with the song titles from Lobo Loco. Don't forget to tune in this upcoming Tuesday for another episode of Tallahassee Tuesday. It will be the last one for April, and you should definitely tune in. You can find me on Twitter at Wait5Minutes, on Instagram at Wait5MinutesPodcast, or via my email at Wait5MinutesPodcast at gmail.com. The links for those will be in the description below as well. That's all I've got for you. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Go magic, go solar bears, go lightning, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good weekend.